Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everyone? This is George Khalife. We're back with another episode of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm joined today by the pioneer of the junk hauling industry and the founder and CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Brian Scudamore. Thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, no, thanks, George. Uh, I drink a lot of coffee, so any chance to have a coffee and uh, I got one in my hand here and chat with uh, another <laughs> entrepreneur and someone who gets it, happy to do so. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, so first of all, how are you doing? How are things? These are great. Certainly busy, loving life, but uh, I got three young kids. I've got four businesses, three of them young, and we are taking on the world of home services, building uh, the most trusted brands in home service, one exceptional experience at a time, and it's been really phenomenal. Now, I remember watching this video and you were talking about how you were in a McDonald's drive-through, you see this truck parked outside and you think to yourself, like, this might be a good investment to start a business. And that was actually the impetus of what led to 1-800-GOT-JUNK. What was that all about? Yeah, 30 years ago, I was in a McDonald's drive through here in Vancouver trying to contemplate my future. How was I going to pay for college? I was one course short from graduation. I talked my way into college and I said, OK, I got to fund my uh, own education. My parents weren't going to do it. And uh, it was a bit of a light bulb moment. I mean, it was nothing very big. I didn't have a vision for building the junk removal empire that we've got today, being the world's largest junk removal company and 400 million in revenue, three countries. I mean, it was so far from that. It was a simple idea that was going to pay for college. When I saw this truck in front of me, it said Mark's Hauling. It had plywood sides up on the box. And it was a $700 investment, $300 in flyers and business cards. That made up my total $1,000 life savings. And off I went to, to build a business. But it's funny because ironically, what funded my college education inspired me to drop out. I was learning more about wow. business, running a business more than I was in school and made the bold decision, had to sit down with my parents to say, guess what, uh, mom and dad, I'm, I'm leaving school to become a full-time junk man. And they thought I was crazy, but the rest is history. Wow, that's an incredible story, man. And it's, it's definitely challenging to do that, you know, to drop out of school, to talk to your parents about wanting to pursue those passions. And this kind of leads me to this, this question I have for you. Like, do you think entrepreneurs are built with this type of DNA? Are they born this way or are they made through the experiences that they go through eventually? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I watched a movie, a documentary that Richard Branson, I think, did, uh, Lemonade Diaries or Lemonade Stories. And it was all on that topic of are entrepreneurs made or born. And I think there's different feelings out there in the entrepreneurial world. If I think of my own feelings, you know, I've got uh, one of my kids, I think, is destined to be an entrepreneur. I've never asked her what she wants to be in, in life. Uh, I just believe in opening my kids' minds to new experiences, new countries, new cultures. But there's just this energy and this frantic sort of trying to figure out things and liking to solve problems that I think is, is innate in her. I, I tend to believe I was always going to be an entrepreneur. I used to play uh, games with my grandparents and I would charge them to play. 
I was always, you know, trying to find a way to make a buck, not because of the money, but just the adventure of creating something. I used to have a car wash as a kid and I competed with people. Uh, I had a neighbor across the street who ran a car wash and we got in a price war and we were hiring kids in the neighborhood to do marketing. And it was just the fun side of building a business. So I think you can absolutely learn. I mean, let's face it, we've got 250, almost 300 franchise owners across 1-800-GOT-JUNK and all of our O2E brands. They're learning about business with us. I I think we're almost a business incubator where we we give people an education through a franchise program to run their own business. You can learn, but I think a true entrepreneur is probably more uh, nature versus nurture. Yeah, I definitely have to agree. I mean, entrepreneurship does have uh, certain skill sets or traits that if they're kind of innate in you, uh, just help you become more of a natural entrepreneur. I found it very interesting between the dichotomy of your parents and your grandparents. You know, so your grandparents are kind of the entrepreneurs. They had a shop that you were helping at when you were much younger. And when you were four years old, you drew a picture of yourself actually picking up junk that you rediscovered when you were 30 because your grandma held on to it. I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah, well, you know, my my grandmother passed away, loved her dearly. She was an entrepreneur. My grandmother and grandfather ran this army surplus store in San Francisco. I'd go down every summer, every Christmas vacation and go work in their store and learn about business through this small company that they had. And uh, it's funny because my grandmother was my my biggest fan in terms of my my artistic ability, which wasn't very high, but she kept all my drawings. And when she passed away, I found this binder that said Brian's drawings. And one of the drawings stood out. It was a picture of me sweeping up junk. It was the same blue color that was is part of the 1-800-GOT-JUNK brand. It was a self-portrait that I did at four and a half years old. We've got it up in the office here in the junction. It was strange. I mean, most kids think of, you know, they dream of being Superman, Wonder Woman, uh, you know, some, some actor, actress, whatever it might be. I somehow saw myself as a junk man. I mean, is it destiny? Is it fate? I, I, you know, I'm not that kind of guy to think it is, but it certainly is strange that that is what I actually became. I really do find that uh, strange. I mean, in a great way, but uh, at the same time, I think for a lot of people listening who might be aspiring founders, they might be in university, for example, who were in the same predicament as you were. It's often difficult to make that decision between, you know, do I still pursue academics or do I build something on the side or do I just take that leap and pursue something full time? What advice would you give to your kids maybe who want to get into entrepreneurship and come to you for advice? Yeah, so I would honestly give this to my kids if they asked. So I've got kids ranging from uh, teenage years down to seven years old. Yeah. And we don't talk about what they want to be when they grow up because I just want them to be happy. And right. again, I said this earlier, but my, my job as a parent, I believe, is to give them experiences, give them perspective. Took the kids to India to help build a school, took them to Kenya to help build a school and work in the community. Uh-huh. What they will become in life does not matter to me as long as they find their way, their purpose, and, and they're happy. And so if my kids, any one of them came to me at some point and said, you know, I'm dropping out of school to go into entrepreneurship, I'd say, awesome, do it, you know, get out there and learn on the streets as I did how to run and, and grow a business. If one of my kids said my lifelong dream is to be a, a, a doctor like my, uh, my father, I would say, yeah, you better not drop out of school. I mean, who wants a doctor operating on them that doesn't have their credentials, right? So I think school university is very important for, uh, it's attached to a profession and it really depends what you're doing. But really, it, uh, it's one of those things where um, 
for entrepreneurship, I, I think you learn more by getting out and doing versus studying. That's great advice, especially that you're not kind of pressuring them into anything, but letting them figure it out. Talking about executing, though, with that obviously comes the chance of failure, but also learning to embrace it. You talk about this in your new book, WTF, which for those listening is not what the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but, but why was the willingness to fail, which is actually what it stands for, so important for you as you were growing your business? Yeah, so I, I wrote a book all about failure, 30 Years of Failure. It's called, of course, as you said, WTF, Willing to Fail. To mm -hmm. me you might feel in a moment like WTF, what just happened? And, uh, but it really is one of those things where I find every time that I can get introspective and say, okay, this failure, this mistake I've made has happened for a reason. I might know, not know that reason today. I will learn why this failure has happened and how it will make me greater, how it makes the company better, or how it will make me a better leader. Some of my early failures that turned out to be absolutely brilliant in the long run and, and be a real gift was 1994, five years into my business, half a million in revenue, I fired my entire company. Uh, 11 employees, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. And I said, okay, I, I don't know what to do here other than start again. I had nine bad apples. I fired the entire staff of 11 and I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry I let you down. I'm sorry I didn't necessarily hire the right people, train you properly, give you the love and support. I don't necessarily believe in you and I'm sure you don't believe in me, but I'm sorry. And let's, let's part ways. And I went from a company of five trucks down to just me, rebuilt the company over three to six months. I don't even remember exactly the time frame because it was a painful period and I tried to forget it. But I rebuilt. And why it was a gift was it taught me your company is only as strong as the people you employ, that you share your vision with. So I started finding the right people and treating them right. I found people I would consider friends. I started hiring clean-cut, professional, energetic, smiley faces. And that just changed for forever the course of, of my business. You look at Starbucks. Every time I go into a Starbucks, like this morning, they're smiley, they're friendly, they're yeah. warm, they're inviting, they're consistent. What an opportunity to build a business through finding the right people. Yeah, definitely. And, and actually just talking about customer experience, I had uh, David Siegel, who's the founder of uh, David's Tea and Mad Radish, and he talked a lot about that kind of customer experience when you walk in, you know, they're asking you to sample, they have that smiling face on, it's kind of a great energy. So it definitely does go a long way. The entrepreneur in you also did something that maybe a bit different than what others would suggest or recommend, which is hiring close friends. You hired your best friend, I believe, as your COO, and uh, together you guys helped grow the business from $2 million to $106 million in seven years. How was that like? How was the dynamic? Did it ever get to a point where things did get more challenging? Uh, and, and just keeping that boundary between professional and personal. Yeah, it's interesting. So Cameron Harold uh, was my COO. I spent uh, most of last week hanging out with Cameron Harold at the big global TED conference in Vancouver. So that right. should tell you the, the story ended well. <laughs> We're friends. Um, Cameron's an amazing guy. Cameron helped me grow from 2 million to 106 million in seven years. But what happened, the problem was not with us and our ability to communicate. We weren't bickering. We quite the opposite. I mean, we loved working together. But yeah. the challenge was as two ADD high energy leaders at the top of the business, we were two fire-ready aim types at the helm. And that wasn't scalable beyond 100 million. It probably started to show its, its cracks 
uh, in the foundation at 75 million. So I had to make the very difficult decision to get Cameron out of the business. Really, really tough on our friendship short term. But as I said, we repaired that. But Cameron would tell you if he was on your podcast and, and you should have him on, he's a smart dude, is Cameron would say, hey, listen, this is something where it was the right thing ultimately for the company, which he still cares deeply about. And it was the right thing for him and his career. He launched a career doing a ton of TED Talks, a ton of books. Uh, he, he's a pretty uh, incredible guy. So he's built up a coaching business and some fun things have happened. So things work out for the best when you're in that moment of failure. I mean, I can only imagine that day how Cameron really felt being let go from a company that he's put his heart and soul into. But years later, it would prove to be absolutely the best decision for both sides. And it was a win-win. So you got to be grateful for the failures. One thing I do, you know, your listeners, your, your viewers might sit there and say, well, yeah, when you're in a failure, I mean, it, it totally sucks. You can't get yourself out. Um, you feel like a real failure. How do you see it as a gift? What I do every time something bad happens, even if it's personal, I'll pull out a sheet of paper and I'll write down at least one good thing that will come from the seemingly tough moment. And I've never been let down. There's always a gift. There's always something better. It takes me to a better, bigger place because of that, that fall down, that fail. Yeah, it actually uh, reminds me a lot of the, the story or the parable behind uh, the, the Chinese farmer, if you know it. Well, yeah, well, basically, it's a story of this Chinese farmer who, uh, you know, along a journey or story, ends up losing a lot of things that other people who encounter him uh, see it as a big disadvantage. But every time, say, he, for example, he loses a horse uh, one day, you know, people are like, oh, I'm very sorry for your loss. And he's like, well, maybe, maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's bad. So his perspective was always that, you know, nothing is either an advantage or disadvantage. It's just really the perspective that you have in the moment that it actually happens. And, and building that kind of muscle, I think, is very important, which you've done very well. Yeah, I trust that everything works out well in the end. And if it's not, uh, if it doesn't end well, it's it's not the end, right? So yeah. um, I have fun doing what I'm doing. And every day is a gift. And we're creating magic with our brands at O2E Brands. And um, the, the, the parent company, O2E, stands for Ordinary to Exceptional. We are taking ordinary people and helping them find a life in entrepreneurship with us under any one of our brands. They will never succeed and get to exceptional without making plenty and plenty of mistakes. So it is having faith that failure is and should be your friend. Yeah, if you were to look back you know, on your journey so far, what would you say is the most gratifying, sort of the most rewarding moment that you've experienced throughout this whole thing? Yeah, there's some extra special milestones of things like hitting 100 million in revenue. And we took the entire company. We surprised everybody. We had a, a, <laughs> had a daily huddle meeting at the, the junction and we bring everybody together. Yeah. And one day we brought everyone together for a huddle and said, surprise, we're headed out on some buses. And we took, I think, four buses and we all headed up to Whistler, a ski resort near Vancouver. And we all just partied and, you know, celebrated, ate great food, danced and had fun. And, you know, it was fun just to see what we were building, something bigger and better together. I think getting on the Oprah Winfrey show back in about 2002, I think it was, 2003, that was a, a magic moment, a life memory, getting to give Oprah a big hug in the green room was pretty cool. So there's little things that stand out, but I honestly have to say it really is the journey. It's the day-to-day -day journey that I love. We're at 444 million in system-wide revenue this year is our, our current target trend. Wow. 
we have a goal of getting to a billion. I don't think anything special is going to happen when we get to a billion. And that's not where the happiness occurs. The happiness has to occur each and every day, feeling the pride, feeling uh, the, the enthusiasm from other people, knowing that we're help changing people's lives, not just customers, but our franchise owners. So it's, it's just how everything works together and enjoying that on a day-to-day basis and celebrating each and every day. It's really great advice, especially for millennials, you know, who don't always live in the present moment. They're always kind of future-focused and thinking about what's next. But if, if you're looking back at, at all these highlights and things that you just talked about, did you ever have a discussion with your dad maybe who didn't understand entrepreneurship as much when you first started, but looking back now, you know, is very proud of all the work that you've done and maybe more receptive to the journey that you took? I know for my parents, you know, they were always supportive, even with all the side hustles like the podcast, uh, the app that I co-founded. But for a lot of people, that might not be the case. And I just want to know how that was for you. Yeah, I think my dad believes in higher education and I clearly didn't go that route and our route. And, and when he, when I sat down and told him, Hey dad, guess what I'm doing? I, I shared it in a positive way. I'm like, dad, I got some good news. And I had him sit down and I said, I'm dropping out of university. And he said, how is that good news? But what's uh, interesting while he didn't support it and didn't get it, mm-hmm. he went out and talked to some entrepreneur buddies of his and they said, wow, Brian sounds like a smart guy. Let him do his thing. He's young. He's got plenty of years ahead career-wise, let them figure it out. And I think it was hard for my dad, for me doing something a different way than what he was accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I know he was proud. He would tell people. He just wouldn't tell me. He'd tell others he was incredibly proud of me, and sometimes it would circle back. But you know, today, he certainly said, yeah, I'm proud of you, Bri. You've done a great job, all that sort of stuff. And so there's mutual admiration career-wise for what we've both done uh, for each other. But it, it, it took time. And, uh, you know, I think that when you see your kids out there failing, I think I have a different perspective than my father. Failing and leaving school and not doing so well while I was there was, was a gift. I think for my dad, it created a sense of fear and anxiety for him that I wasn't going to be okay. But I think it turned out okay. <laughs> I think so too, man. During that time, though, not everything was okay, right? And I think you know, during that early start of your business, you actually had to let go of a lot of people, very difficult decision to make, but you really wanted to refocus, re-engineer the, the mindset of the business because you had a different standard in mind for what 1-800-GOT-JUNK should be, and the people at the time just weren't aligned with that. And so how did you make those tough decisions? Yeah, I think it was always sitting down and just being transparent, being honest, telling people, here's what I feel, Here's what's working. Here's what isn't. I'm a big believer. Ken Blanchard, who wrote the book One Minute Manager, Mm -hmm. give that immediate one minute feedback to people. Tell them how you feel. Tell them what you think and uh, and talk about it versus letting things stew and fester. And so I've always been quick just to sit down and have difficult conversations with people, because when I told you, we talked about Cameron Harold, Cameron Harold and I didn't have conflict in the sense of being upset with each other or having difficult times together because we would sit down and talk and we would sit there and respect each other's opinions. And we would go head to head, toe to toe on stuff, but in a very productive way that would always get us to a better place. So my feeling is people need to sit down and have tough conversations in business or personal life and and don't let them wait because um, things do get better by talking them through. Was there ever one thing that you didn't know back then that you know now that you would have taken 
to maybe change the trajectory of how things ended up going? I don't think so. If I look at franchising my business as, a, as an example, mm-hmm. I remember I went to almost a dozen different franchise experts in the world, and they told me this business couldn't be franchised. And if I had believed that and trusted those experts, I might not have ever gone out to try and franchise. I mean, clearly we'd made franchising work. Right. All these experts told me reasons why it couldn't happen. So I think that I was naive. I didn't have a lot of education. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think, again, that's a gift to help you figure out how to challenge and, and change the world. You know, I love stories like Airbnb, where these guys get out there and, and rent air mattresses at the Democratic <laughs> National Convention as a business model. I mean, it was ridiculous, but they failed. And they morphed that business into what it is today, the largest hotel chain on the planet. Yeah, well, listening to your intuition definitely has served you well throughout the, the whole kind of process. Because I remember that you know certain people on the team wanted to go, at the time, the more kind of commercial routes and maybe more B2B. But you wanted to focus more on consumers because you really believed that was where the heart of the business was. But that's another difficult decision and point to get across, wasn't it? Yeah, I had a COO after Cameron Harold who really spent a lot of money and time and energy focused on driving our commercial side of the business. And I remember it was called the big bet and the bet didn't pay off. You know, my gut said we were mostly as 1-800-GOT-JUNK and, and same with any of our brands, Shack Shine, Wow, One Day Painting, they're, they're residentially based. Yes, there's a commercial component, but it wasn't big enough for us to make it our big bet. And sometimes as an entrepreneur, we really do have to trust our gut. And Mm -hmm. so it was, again, having conversations with people and saying, you know, we'll try, we'll do some experiments, we'll pilot some commercial programs. But in the end, they didn't really work in the same way that our residential business does. Now, today, 75% of our business is residential. So we're still doing nearly $100 million commercially, which is exciting. But the potential, I think, for us as a brand is still really growing uh, the residential side. And and then sometimes it's bringing in people that are just smarter than you, than you that can figure things out in a way that you can't. And we've got a really talented commercial team that proved to me that, you know what, there was some serious potential here and, and let's continue to put resources after it, even though it didn't seem to be working in the early days, they found a way to make it, make it work. How do you define legacy for yourself? You know, with, with, having accomplished so much, uh, both personally and professionally, actually, how do you, when you want to look back, when it's all said and done, what are those points that you want people to remember? Yeah, legacy, I think, is what impact do you have on the planet? And I think our impact is inspiring entrepreneurship, helping ordinary people do exceptional things. I'm just an ordinary guy. Uh, We've built a pretty (laughs) exceptional business together. And so it's bringing in entrepreneurially minded people who want to build something special. I mean, that's a great legacy. We've got 300 franchise owners out there that are each building their own businesses across different brands of ours. They're helping to develop and build the lives of their truck team members and their technicians. Um, so I think that the the power of an idea spreading, it just gets bigger, better, and, it, and it's all about our belief, building something bigger and better, better together. To me, that is legacy. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, especially, you know, what impact you have on the planet. And I know that you've done your part, sir. I got one more question for you, Bri. And this is for our millennial audience, aspiring founders. What advice would you give them if you were in their shoes? And better yet, 
what would you have done differently if you were to go back and you're in your mid-20s and you're going to start this whole thing? What would that be? Yeah, so two things. What advice do I have? Uh, I would say know where you're going in terms of a vision. Have a vision, a painted picture of, of where you're going. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, I think there's a quote in there. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. You don't need to know how you're going to build the world's largest hotel chain on the planet, Airbnb. You just have to know what the end game looks like, feels like, what's your culture, what, what, what pride do you feel? Um, so I started a process called Painted Picture, where we create a vision on one page, double-sided. What does the future look like, feel like, and how does it act? And that guides everything we do. If any of your uh, audience wants a copy of our painted picture, just to understand the process and an article I wrote about painted picture, uh, if they go to my Instagram, at Brian Scudamore, send me a DM and just say painted picture, I'll, I'll fire off a copy. Um, but I would say, you know, to the second question, what would I do differently? I've got 30 years of failures and learnings and I wouldn't want to take away any of those failures. They were gifts to get me to a better place. Cameron and I needed to fail in terms of two leaders at the top at a $106 million business in order for us to get to the $444 million business we are today. So I, I wouldn't have done anything differently. You, you need to learn. And if everything's too easy, the, the victory wouldn't be, uh, be so sweet. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Really, really appreciate having you on the show. And uh, genuinely can't wait till 1-800 gets that 1 billion mark so we can get you back on to talk about more things. There we go. Awesome. Well, uh, congrats on your podcast and uh, you know, you're building a pretty cool thing with uh, interviewing some great people. So I wish you all the best of luck and uh, thank you again for including me. Uh -huh.